Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord, grateful for this place to worship you. Lord, I give you thanks for each man, woman, and child in this room. And Lord, it is my prayer that the message that you have laid on my heart today will be one that will impact lives to your glory and the edification of those who will hear it. Lord, be with our Pastor Travis as he travels, as he's away this weekend. Give him rest, give him refreshment. Lord, help him to enjoy himself away and bring him safely back to us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. It's kind of funny, I didn't realize it, but uh, Anthony was preaching not too long ago and, and he was talking about how we have a rotation or we've always had a rotation of men that would step in and, and preach for Pastor Travis and he brought to my attention that I hadn't done that since September of 2019. So it seems like forever and uh, I'm really excited to be back up here. I love the chance to be here. Because if you haven't had a chance to do this, you realize when you're going to be, be preaching that it's a great opportunity to really dig into the Word. And I'll be 100% honest with you. I spend more time in the Word when I'm getting ready to do this than I do in a normal week. It's that simple, right? And don't get me wrong. I spend time in the Word during the normal week. But there is a little more emphasis, a little more time spent when you're getting ready to do this. So I'm always grateful. I can't believe it's been three years. And Lord willing, it'll pick up in pace a little bit. So this morning, as we prepare to get started, I'd ask each of you to open your, book or your Bible or your phones or whatever you use to Colossians 1, 15. And our passage this morning is going to come from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Um, and we're going to get to that. I'm going to do things a little bit differently than normal. Um, this morning, we're going to be very heavy on application, right? That's what I'm going to focus on. And we're going we're gonna to build... Um, to that, and I'll explain it as we go, but let me start by telling you that when I was a young boy, and I was growing up in East Texas, I spoke much differently than I do now. Um, not only did I have a much more pronounced accent, right, and if you've known me for a while, you may have noticed that, um, but I also used a whole different vocabulary, right? When I was young, my mom and my teachers, if I misspoke, they would let me know about it, right? They did it for all of us. Why did they do that? They did it because they knew that words matter. And they wanted to make sure that we were taking the time to choose the words to properly express whatever it was that we wanted to talk about, right? So as I've aged, I've noticed that the English language seems to be changing a lot faster. Is it just me? Right? I mean, words that we used to say, that words that had meaning and had significance, you don't hear a lot of them anymore. Everything seems to be shortened, right? We want to speak as fast as we can, and we want to minimize, like we only get so much breath in a lifetime, so let's minimize the words and use the shorter ones. I don't know. But it seems like everything gets a lot shorter. Um, one of those words that we used to use when I was younger is preeminence. And if you take a look at your ESV, if you use the ESV, the section of Scripture that we're going to look at today, the editors determined to name the preeminence of Christ. So I thought, let's look up what preeminence means. Preeminence commonly refers to superiority. The Cambridge Dictionary defines preeminence as the quality of being more important or better than others. So in our postmodern era, the world wants us to all believe that that simply isn't true anymore. 
right? Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's more important than anybody else. We're all lovely, right? We're all equal. I'm sorry, that's just not true, right? If you came here hoping to hear that, you're in the wrong place because that is not what we believe and that is not what we teach. There are differing values in everything. For instance, dogs are of greater value than cats. <laughs> right? Though some of you may disagree, and I'm sorry, we can meet after sermon, and we, I can help you understand where you're wrong. But dogs are of greater value than cats. Right? Sandstone is nowhere near as valuable in a monetary system as gold. Right? And if you found yourself in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I can promise you a boat would be of much more value. It'd be far better to you than a stack of gold bricks. Anybody want to argue? There are different values for different things. And the same thing applies, believe it or not, to the people in our lives. Right? If you're severely injured, who do you want to see? Me or Jason Montenegro? Montenegro. Paramedics are of much more value to an injured person than a cop. I don't know what to do for you. Jason Montenegro can get you through, right? How about those of you who are married? Would you say that your spouse, and the answer here better be yes, just as a clue, <laughs> is, is more important to you or more valuable to you than anybody else that you interact with? Yes, dear, that's true for me. <laughs> In case this is being recorded, I want to make sure I set that record straight. Preeminence is, in fact, a very valid term. It legitimately refers to the superiority of some things over other things. That's, there are things that are more important and they are more value than other things. So in our scripture this morning, we're going to look closely at the preeminence of Christ. We're going to look at why Jesus is worthy of being the preeminent in your lives. We're going to talk about what it looks like when Jesus is preeminent in the life of a believer. And we're going to talk about what it looks like when Jesus is preeminent in the life of the church. So it is my prayer this morning that this message will have the same impact it had, or, or the impact on you that it had on me, if it's applicable. I really, really hope, my, my prayer today is that you will take the time to hear what I'm saying and honestly look at your own lives, right? Is Jesus in the position of preeminence in your life? We're going to go into more detail on that. But it is critical that you understand, that you recognize who or what is preeminent in your life. Now, if I were to poll this room, I am 100% certain that every believer in the room would say the preeminent thing in their life is Jesus. But let me ask you this. If I were to go to your family, who knows you better than anybody, probably spends more time with you than anybody, or if I were to go to your work, your coworkers, or maybe for those students in the room, to your school, to your, your fellow students, or even to your neighbors, right, who, who see you some, maybe not as much as others, and I were to ask them the same question, would they give me the same answer? Can they tell by the way that you live your life that Jesus is preeminent in your life? Think about that. 
because that's critical. You all have a variety of things that are important to you. But what is the it? What is the one thing? Because there can only be one thing that is the most important to you. What holds the position of preeminence in your life? Brothers and sisters, it's a critical question. And it's critical to know who holds that position because there's two reasons. Number one, whatever occupies that position of preeminence in your life gets the majority of your attention. That's the thing that you give your highest, most concentrated level of effort to, and it dictates your priorities. Number two, if you're giving the position of preeminence in your life to something else, and you're a believer, you are diminishing Christ, and God is not going to have that. So it's critically important that we know that. So what I'm going to do is begin using our passage today to build a case for why Christ should be in the position of preeminence in your life. So our passage this morning, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I'm going to start by reading the whole thing. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So beginning in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Genesis 1.27 says that man and women, or man and woman, were created in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Now this doesn't mean that God exists in human form. What it means is that man and woman were made for a purpose. And that purpose was to reflect the holy nature of God. However, Adam failed to do that. When Adam sinned, he brought sin into the world and his reflection of God became distorted. As a result, every single person with human parents has a sin nature. And every one of us provide a distorted image of God. However, Jesus did not have a sin nature. And as a result, his reflection of God is absolutely perfect. When we read that he is the image of the invisible God, we know that he is the perfect image. I love the way John Piper explains how perfect an image of the Father Jesus is when he writes this. God is three in one. In brief, there is God the Father, the fountain of being. Now catch this part. Who from all eternity has had a perfectly clear and distinct image and idea of himself. 
And this image is the eternally begotten Son. No question that Jesus is the perfect image of God. Speaking of Jesus, in Hebrews 1.3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Because you know the Word of God to be completely inerrant, you know that when you see Jesus, you see the perfect image of the nature of God. When you see Jesus in the Scriptures, you see the nature of God on perfect display, exactly as it should be. In Jesus, you see the love of God perfectly exemplified. You see the mercy of God perfectly extended. You see the grace of God perfectly applied and the justice of God perfectly administered. And you can say that about every single characteristic of God as it goes through. They are all perfectly reflected in Christ. Because Jesus is the perfect image of God, you're able to recognize what is unseen, the invisible God, by what is seen, Jesus. Christ perfectly displaying the image of God is the first reason that he has, is worthy of holding the position of preeminence in your life. Continuing in verses 15 through 17, you see Paul refer to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The end of verse 15 does not mean that Jesus was created. As John 1, 1 through 3 also tell us, Jesus was the firstborn among creation. Firstborn doesn't mean he was born. It refers to his position of authority, as was the culture for the oldest child in that, in that uh, culture. Verses 16 and 17 make it clear that not only was Jesus the creator of all things, but that all things were made for him as well. Everything that was made was made to glorify God. There is, a fa there is the fact also that without him, the whole world would cease to exist. The fact that Jesus created all things from nothing and holds them all together is the second reason Jesus is worthy of the position of preeminence in your lives. And as we conclude our passage, you see the third reason to argue for the preeminence of Christ. That's verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For him, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is preeminent in the church because he perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. Because Jesus has lived a perfectly sinless life, he is worthy of being the sacrifice for our sins. Because Jesus was obedient to God, even obedient to death on a cross, he became the atonement for our sins. Because Jesus provided the blood necessary for the forgiveness of sins, we who are under that blood 
have been forgiven for every sin we have ever committed and every sin we will ever commit. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we know that we too, if we are trusting in Him alone for our salvation, will be raised from the dead. Because Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, He is preeminent in the church and should be preeminent in the lives of those He laid His, lives down, his life down to reconcile. Now there are plenty of other verses that make an argument for the preeminence of Jesus. Hebrews 1.6, where all the angels are directed to worship Him. Colossians 2.9, which clearly states that He is, in fact, deity. And 2.10, that makes it very clear that He is the head over all power. That means there is not a level of authority anywhere, be it local, state, national, or international, that He does not control. November 8th was a big election day. I went into that very excited. I could see the red wave coming, right? Things were going to be better, right? Even today, I got more bad news on, regarding the election, right? But you know what? If Jesus is preeminent in your life, you're not concerned, right? Because who has authority over whoever sits in any seat anywhere? or on any throne anywhere. God is. Amen? And i got to tell you, after seeing the, seeing the news that I saw this morning, I know how grateful I am that Jesus is sovereign. Even when, especially when, I don't understand what it is He's doing. Right? There's a lot of things that are going to happen in this country over the next few years that I don't, I don't understand why God's going to allow but it's not my place to know. It's my place to trust. And let me encourage each of you, have Jesus in that place of preeminence and look to Him when you're concerned about those things, knowing that He's got complete and total control over all of it. So all of those verses, all of them point to Jesus' preeminence. But let me point you to one more. I think this kind of closes the argument. And if I wanted to be too brief, I'd have just skipped right to here. It's John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given Him all things into His hand. Jesus is to occupy the position of preeminence in our lives because the Father gave it to Him. So simple. I could have cut right to that. But I wanted to make sure we helped build it up a little bit. Again, allow me to ask each of you to examine your own hearts. You know that the Bible says Jesus is preeminent. You know that God has directed you to make sure He is preeminent in your life at all times. But there's more than just knowing that. It's necessary now. What I would ask you to do now is truly look at your life, look at yourself, look into your heart, and see if that's what you're doing. Jesus cannot just be important to you. He must be preeminent. To quote Dr. Greg Stikes of Bob Jones University, you, you invest much time in serving Jesus and praying to Him and showing Him love. But it is not enough that Jesus, is, has, that Jesus have prominence in your lives. He must have preeminence. Everybody seeing the difference? Jesus isn't just important to us. Jesus is everything to us.
as believers, you understand that Jesus deserves a position of preeminence in your life. You also know that God demands that you give it to him. So let's look at what it looks like when you do. Giving Jesus the position of preeminence in, in your life means that you make yourself and your desires subordinate to the will of God. It means that Jesus is truly more important to you than anyone or anything else. And it means you pursue Jesus in everything with everything you've got. You will not pursue him perfectly. We all will continue to sin until we are no longer on this earth. When we're with Jesus in glory and we have our perfect bodies, that's when the sinning will stop. But that's not an excuse to stop trying to be, serve him all the time. If Jesus is in the position of preeminence, you will pursue him in your job. You will pursue him when interacting with your neighbors and even in your free time. So ask yourself, does your life demonstrate to your unsaved co-workers or fellow students, if you're a student, that you believe Jesus is more valuable than anything? Does your behavior show that you're grateful for the gift of salvation that he's given you? Or do your actions lead them to believe that you don't consider Jesus to be anything more than a wise teacher, just like they do? What about your neighbors? Have you tried to share the gospel with your neighbors? If not, why? Is it because you don't want to be, you, you don't want to be embarrassed? Is it because you don't want to be thought of as too different? When your work is done and you don't have time to spare at the end of the day, what do you do with it? Do you spend it on God-honoring activities? Or do you curl up with some popcorn and watch that show that you'd be too embarrassed to tell anybody in this room that you watch? Or do you spend time watching sports? I like sports. I watch sports. Watching sports is, in and of itself is not sinful. But if you're watching this game and you know in the back of your head there's better things I could be doing and I should be doing and I need to be doing, you're doing the wrong thing. You're making that sport preeminent over what God's calling you to do. So ask yourself, do I give Jesus the position of preeminence in my time, in my interactions, in the way that I carry myself? Now another result of Jesus being in the position of preeminence is giving the appropriate priority to the Word of God. If you love the Word of God, you spend time in it. It permeates you and is more and more frequently demonstrated in your behavior. When you lo love the Word of God, you grow in your love for God and your desire to serve Him and please Him with your actions. Not to earn salvation. We all know we can't earn salvation, but you want to show Him how grateful you are for what it is that He's done for you. Properly prioritizing the Word of God means that you are not only hearers of the Word, but doers of the word. Again, you will not always do this perfectly, but when you love the word and you have it written in your heart, you will be quick to recognize your sin and to repent of it. Another action that flows from giving Jesus a position of preeminence in your life is the mortification of sin. Now, if you've been in our growth class, you've seen very clearly how John Owen demonstrates that you cannot mortify sin without the help of the Holy Spirit. 
But he's also made it very clear that the mortification of sin is a high priority in the life of any believer who has given Jesus the position of preeminence in his or her life. As Owen says, you can't mortify sin if you are willing to find excuses for it. If you are willing to minimize its damage or if you are only looking to mortify it so you can avoid going to hell. Progress toward the mortification of sin is something that will be accomplished or will not be accomplished until Jesus holds the position of preeminence in the believer's life. Until then, sin is occupying that position. Now, if you attended a previous growth class, you learned that God is big and people are small. When Jesus is preeminent in your life, you do not fear the opinions of others. You do not spend your time concerned about the opinions of others, but rather you spend it seeking to serve God. You are willing to lovingly challenge sin when you see it, not just go along to get along, whether it's in your private life or your public life. If you're winking at sin like everybody else around you is, you're not giving Christ the preeminence. You are willing to sit back and let that sin dictate what you're doing. And I promise you, doing so will negatively impact your relationship with the Lord. Now, a man who loved the Lord and showed it all the time was Jonathan Edwards. And in writing about the ministry of Edwards, Owen Strachan and Doug Sweeney describe a man who placed Jesus in the position of preeminence. They say, At the center of Edwards' understanding of conversion was his view of God. Edwards' ministry centered not around pragmatic questions, but around a dominant concern that all he would do and say would bring glory to God and advance his kingdom. Edwards knew that he did not need to please man. He needed to please God. He followed the theocentric trail wherever it led him, even when it led into territory that threatened to harm his ministry due to the lack of scriptural understanding in his church. Life was not about him after all. It was, about, it was centered around God and his glory. For Edwards, Jesus was worthy of worship, even if it meant losing his job or whatever else might follow. And finally, a person who gives Jesus a position of preeminence in his or her life is joyful. When Jesus occupies that position and you spend your time reading his word and praying, worshiping and sharing your faith with others, you are doing what God has created you to do and it will fill you with joy. The assurance that you will spend eternity with the one who loves you enough to lay down his life for you will fill your hope or fill your heart. I'm so excited about hope, I said it too fast. He will fill your heart with hope and joy. Now, this does not mean that you will always be happy. Life is hard. Sin impacts us. However, if Jesus is in that, pre that position of preeminence, your heart will be focused on him and you will overcome those hard times much quicker. So when you give the position of preeminence to someone or something in your life, that someone or something is what you will worship. That's why you should only give that position to Jesus. When Jesus is the focus of your worship, he is the one you admire, he's the one you strive to serve well, 
And he is the one you live for. He is the source of your life. He is the one you love more than any other. He is your God. So we've examined what it looks like when individuals give Jesus the position of preeminence that he deserves. But what about a church? What about the people that you gather with on Sundays? Right? Now, a faithful church is one that not only proclaims that Jesus should be the right, is the rightful owner of the position of preeminence in your life, but also exemplifies what that looks like as a church. So let me ask you, does the church place the gospel of Jesus in the position of preeminence? Or is it their programs, their charitable work, their reputation in the community, their worship groups, right? What's more important? Is it the gospel or is it those things? Does the church place the gospel of Jesus in that position? Is their growth rate important to them? Or is it more important for them that they teach the word of God, not the opinion of whoever happens to be standing up here? Does the church challenge you to recognize the seriousness of your sin, clearly demonstrating your need for a Savior? Or do they tell you that you're a good person and that you have a good heart and that God is a God of love and to just do the best you can and in the end, it'll all come out okay? A primary characteristic of a church that gives Jesus the position of preeminence is the value they place on the Word of God. His Word should be cherished and taught faithfully. A church that has Jesus in that position believes in the infallibility of the Word of God. They, the Word of God is treated as precious and it must be taught faithfully. It's the foundation of the church's teaching. It's the final word in all matters. The members truly believe and demonstrate what is taught in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The leadership of that church encourages its members not only to hear the word on Sunday morning when they come gather but to engage with it daily and to spend time in the Bibles searching out the Scriptures so that they can give a biblical answer for the hope that lies within them. A church that uses any other material instead of the Bible to teach or that teaches from some other document more regularly than they teach from the Bible or, heaven forbid, even says they have another gospel of Jesus that they want to share with you, is not a church that puts Jesus in a position of preeminence. It's not a place you want to be. Be grateful, as I am grateful, for a pastor who will not have that, and for a board of leaders here, who, of elders here, who will not have that, and for a congregation who will not sit under that. The Word of God is top priority, and it must always be. Another critical characteristic of a church that puts Jesus in the position of preeminence is a love for Christ. Every element of the weekly gathering should be based on glorifying God. Whether it's the songs we sing or whether it's the message that you're hearing from here. If you're hearing anything other than the glory of God coming out of this, this, this uh, pulpit and the gospel coming out of this pulpit, we're making a mistake. 
and we need to know about it. That is not what we're here to do. The church is to be a beacon on a hill for unbelievers. We need to be shining brightly. Every effort that the church undertakes, though, whether it be in the community or when they're gathered, should have one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to clearly point to Christ. A church that puts Jesus in the position of preeminence also demonstrates a love for believers. The Bible clearly teaches that believers are family. Jesus said it in Matthew 12, and Paul said it in Galatians 6.10. Paul said, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The church is not the building we meet in. It's the collection of individuals that come together each week. As a church, we must constantly be asking ourselves individually how seriously we take our love for one another. As believers, we call one another brother and sister, right? Indicates a a relationship there. But how do you do, and I'm talking to you, how do you do at demonstrating your love for for the members of this body that you meet with each week? Do you meet on Sunday and then go home and don't give it any more thought? Are you involved in one another's lives? Do you come alongside one another on days that aren't Sunday? Do you come alongside one another and pray for one another and offer physical help when it's needed? When an email goes out asking for assistance, do you just look at it and say, I'm sure somebody will help? Or do you look at it and say, you know what, if I rearrange my schedule here, I can help. That's how you show love for one another. Do you reach out to visitors and new members Or do you just spend time with people that you're comfortable with, right? I know these guys. I'm comfortable talking to them. I'm just going to talk to them. How is that extending the love of Christ to those people who don't know you yet? When I first moved to Vegas, I was in the Air Force, and I went to a church, the same denomination church that I grew up in, and I'm not going to say what it was because I don't want to do that. But I walked in that church 10 minutes before it started. I walked in. I walked by everybody, not fast, sat down in a pew, nobody sat in the same pew with me. When it was over, I got up and I walked out and not one person said one word to me the entire time. Please don't let that be us. Please. I did not go back to church for two years. At that point, I was like, I don't need that. I've got my Bible, right? I was so wrong. I missed that by so much. Please don't let us be that, those people. Right? Do you love one another enough that you're willing to challenge a brother or sister when you see them in sin or going down a road they shouldn't take? Or do you just sit back quietly and say, hope somebody addresses that with them? Right? If you're a parent, are you going to let your child do that? Right? If you're a dear friend to somebody, you don't let that happen. You have the courage to step up and get in their way. If you see somebody heading for a cliff, have the courage to grab them. Take whatever steps you need to do to keep them from going over that edge. When you have needs or struggles, are you willing to be transparent and to be open and to be vulnerable and go to your body and say, I need this? We do prayer requests for each other in Sunday school. One, two a week maybe? I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because people just don't feel like 
whatever they need is worthy of prayer or whether they don't want to burden anybody else. But that's what we're here for. That's how we love one another. Share those prayer requests. And when you say you're going to pray for somebody, pray for them right there, right then, and then go home and pray for them some more. Please don't tell me you're going to pray for me and then go home and the next week when I ask you how the praying went, you tell me, oh. Anybody ever do that? I did. I have. I'm owning it, right? I'm terrible about that. How is that displaying my love for you when I do that? Right? That's just me putting you off so I can go talk about something else. I'll be 100% out. That's why I did it. Right? I didn't pray with you right then because I had something else I, had, I needed to be doing. Is that me loving you or is that me loving me? Just things to think about, folks. When you sin against a brother or a sister or one of them sins against you, are you quick to offer forgiveness or to seek forgiveness from them? That's what you do when you love one another. These are all ways that a church puts Christ in that position of preeminence. And they demonstrate a love for believers, both old and new. And I hope something I said right there hits you right here. When I was preparing for this, I would, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. still isn't. Um, churches that give Jesus a position of preeminence also have a heart for the lost. Now, as most of you are probably aware, Reformed churches, whether rightfully or fairly or not, have developed a reputation of being cold. It is simply true. What we ask of you, what the leadership of this church asks for you, is to constantly be struggling to overcome that stigma. I love what Pastor Travis said. We should all strive to be the sweetest, most loving, reformed church anywhere. Please do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Please guard your heart from becoming arrogant toward others simply because you understand how God saved you. And I hope I don't insult anybody here because there's a lot of smart people here, but it wasn't your superior intellect that allowed you to accept Christ as your Savior. You couldn't do it. You know, it's just like Jonah said in Sunday school this morning. If you weren't here, I'm going to say it again, and it's your fault because you've got to make sure everybody heard it. should have all been here this morning, but you weren't, right? We were dead in our sins. We had no hope of ever accepting Christ as our Savior. None whatsoever. Not worthy of it. Not smart enough to figure it out. It's a precious gift from God. You need to recognize that about yourself because if there is something in here that makes you think that you're better than anybody else, and most of us would never say it out loud, but our actions might demonstrate that I am better than you or I'm so sorry God hasn't chosen you, but he's chosen me, right? There's a level of arrogance there that you must check. Understand that you were once just as much an enemy of God as any other unbeliever. You followed the course of this world, pursuing the same sinful desires that they do, giving in to your sinful desires the same way they do, partaking in activities that demonstrated your identity as a child of wrath, just like they do. Never forget that despite all that you did to offend Him, God, being rich in mercy, and solely because of the great love with which He loved you, by grace, not by you, not by your intellect, 
not by your works. God, by His grace, has saved you. And recalling exactly how it is you came to be sitting in these seats as blood-bought saints of Christ, remember that you should be extending that same grace to those around you. When you see people around you sinning, when you see people around you not living for Christ, and I'm not talking about unbelievers here, I'm talking about everybody you come into contact with, please try to take the opportunity to stop them from going where they're going. Love them enough to step out and help them. A final example of what it looks like when a church truly sees Jesus as worthy of the position of preeminence is an intolerance of sin. Now, I've just tried to make a really strong point about how important it is that we reach out to others and show them the nature of that sin. But it's doubly important within the church. Okay? Um, there's a time when a faithful church must take steps to engage a pattern of sinful behavior. When you see a brother or sister who is choosing to walk in sin, you have a responsibility. You and 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 you. Every one of us has a responsibility to do what? To go to that brother or sister and make sure they understand that there is sin involved. If they will not understand what it is you're telling them, if they will not accept what it is that you're telling them, and you've gone to them in love and you're trying to help them to see it, then you need to go to another, you need to take a witness with you. And I would recommend involving the elders at this point. But you need to go to them and you need to confront them. And if that still doesn't work, then it needs to be brought to the church. Why is that? Do we want to embarrass anybody? No. It's true that that has got to be the practice because it is never okay for a church to allow sin to grow there. Why is that? Well, there's two reasons. One, it demonstrates a lack of love for the sinner, allowing them to go on sinning. And two, because the proper application of church discipline is essential to the display of the church's commitment to holiness before God. A church that gives Jesus the position of preeminence is committed to the glory of God and His holiness. Amen? So in conclusion, allow me to ask each of you to examine your own hearts and determine if you have truly given Jesus that position of preeminence in your life. If you are here today and you're counting on your good works, your reason, or just being a good enough person to get you to heaven, your soul is in, per is in peril. If you believe that denying the existence of God or that He is the God described in the Bible means that you will not have to answer to Him, your soul is in peril. He is a holy God. He can and will not accept sin in His presence. Short of the blood of Jesus that has washed that sin from you, the imputed righteousness of Jesus, you cannot stand before Him. If that is you, please don't waste any more time. Come speak to an elder in this body. Come speak to a believer in this body. Let us share with you why it is so important that, important that Jesus have the position of preeminence 
in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, it is my prayer that each of us here today, Lord, will hear your word, that we will examine our lives, and that we will, Lord, give you the position of preeminence every single day of our lives to your glory and to the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.